We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You are listening to KC Sports Network, the number one podcast network for today's Kansas City sports fans. With former players from your favorite teams, informed perspectives, and former insiders, this is the place for you. KC Sports Network is proudly presented by Emprise Bank, your partner in Possible. All right, everybody, welcome in to another episode of the Royals Farm Report podcast. My name is Alex Duvall. I am joined, as always, tonight by Josh Kaiser and Joel Penfield. We are also joined by a special guest, the AA broadcaster for the Northwest Arkansas Naturals. Nicholas Batters will be joining us right after we hear a quick word from our sponsor, Kansas City Strength and Conditioning. From the beginning, we knew right away that we wanted to do strength conditioning and a throwing program for the baseball and softball community. It wasn't something we were trying to back into or all of a sudden learn. We knew we were really good at these coaching these skills from the get-go. And the fact that we're in the same business and the employees are all on the same page, you know, we can write a program based off of what a kid needs, not just getting him stronger or faster from a general sense. It's what does this kid need? On the pitching end, we can say, hey, this kid needs such and such. He needs to do this or that better. A lot of times it turns out it's not something that needs to be fixed in the baseball cage or on the throwing mound, it actually needs to be fixed in the weight room. Uh, fun fact, I listen to that song, to that preview, every time I hit the classroom. So like on Monday mornings, crank that baby up, gets me jazzed up, fired up to start a new day. So uh, <laughs> anyway, like I said, Josh and Joel are both joining me here tonight, and we'll get to them in a minute, because more importantly, we are joined by Nicholas Batters, the voice of the Northwest Arkansas Naturals. And Nick, I don't want to blow smoke up your ass first thing out of the jump here before you get to introduce yourself. But as much double-A baseball as I've watched over the last couple of years with all of the talents gone through there with Bobby Witt Jr., Vinny Pasquantino, MJ, Nick Prado, Nick Loft, and Michael Garcia, all in the last couple of years, your voice is like a mainstay in my earlobes um, during the baseball season. So it is wonderful to have you on, not calling a game, but just, just talking with you. Thanks for joining us tonight. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I've been very, very spoiled with the, the talent that's come through Springdale since I started with the Naturals. I was going to say, what was your first year with the Naturals? Last year, 2021 was my first year. And I, I, I knew that. I, don't I started think... with the team maybe a week. It was the week before the season started. Uh, it all came together pretty quickly. Uh, so it's been a whirlwind to say the least. 
So we can actually credit you with some of the turnaround we've seen from some of these prospects. Yeah, but not not the Naturals record this year. Uh, just, okay. just the turnaround. <laughs> we, He's here for the rebuilds. <laughs> well, speaking of that record, Nick, I think the first thing on everybody's mind, and I hate to start the interview off on a down note, but the first thing on everybody's mind is going to be the pitching. And I want to ask you about the pitching first before I get into my conspiracy theory. The pitching in general, not good most of the year, but it was outside of Drew Parrish, who, by the way, left the Naturals to go to Omaha after just 10 starts and was still the team's pitcher of the year. That tells you, the listener, just generally how bad the pitching staff was for most of the year. Kind of kind of explain to us or walk us through what it was like being around the team because we clearly had some talented arms at the AA level this year. It's not like what we, we, we talked to John Casas last week about the – the early Columbia Fireflies, where it was just a kind of a lack of talent and a lack of experience. It wasn't that with the Northwest Arkansas Naturals this year. Walk us through some of those pitching struggles, and then I'm going to get to my conspiracy theory here in a minute. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you look at the break camp roster, and April 6th, April 8th, on paper, the Naturals had the best pitching staff in the Texas League, and it wasn't even close. Uh, you're right. There was a lot of talent, really, from the start of the season to the end of the season. There wasn't much of a drop-off in talent. At the at the the Texas League, really, really across the league, but especially with the Naturals, um, because you 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 lose Drew Parrish, another arm comes up to replace him. Uh, that was kind of around the time as well that Anthony Veneziano started to figure things out. Uh, but there was there was never really consistency um, from day one, and, I, and I'll attribute part of that, at least early in the season, to the struggle to jump from high A to double A because. It's cliche. It's one of the biggest jumps in the minor leagues, right? Uh, you're going to find hitters are uh, going to be a lot more patient. They're going to be chasing a lot less. Uh, you cannot make the same mistakes that you're making high. And I know the same is true when you go from double A to the triple A, but that's really the first test for, for pitchers in the minor leagues, right? Is, is learning how to make fewer mistakes when you're pitching. And with Anthony Veneziano, he was struggling with, uh, both control and command early on. He had a good start in Tulsa in June, and that's kind of when things started to click for him. And he's an interesting guy because he's so long and lanky and with the crossfire motion, uh, the, the mechanics can get tangled up pretty easily. So there are a lot of moving pieces that have to be uh, working right. Uh, but, man, I mean, you, you can look at – I could go on and on about the season Alec Marsh had, and uh, you saw those flashes of what you thought would be good pitching. I mean, Ace Lacey had flashes of being really dominant – his first couple of starts. Alec Marsh had stretches of being really dominant. The same could be said for TJ Sikama, Andrew Hoffman. Like I said, Veneziano, uh, no matter who was in the rotation or who was in the bullpen, there were flashes of dominance. Uh, there just wasn't continuity across more than a couple of outings for, for most of the staff. And, and there are a lot of different things that I think you could, you could possibly attribute that to. Um, but just top to bottom, the staff could really never get going, which is difficult to, to watch. But if you encompass the Naturals season in a whole from a pitching standpoint, it's probably a lack of control. It was just throwing a lot of balls, not many strikes. I mean, it was uh, walking more batters, allowing more runs than any other team in the Texas League. And there weren't many teams in double-A, um, more double-A teams, more minor league teams that struggled more from a pitching standpoint than the Naturals this year. Um, so really from the get-go, it was, it, was, it was tough. You mentioned the lack of control, I also think that it's interesting that even like 
I tweeted about it several times that even when Alec Marsh had good outings with his control, his batting average on balls in play, his home run to fly ball ratio. And for anybody listening that just like, I just nerded out on him in some capacity batting average on balls in play generally will stabilize. Like generally most pitchers hover around a certain batting average when the ball is fieldable. So it, it discounts strikeouts and home runs, right? When the ball can physically be caught by a field fielder, how often is it caught? And then with home run to fly ball ratio, again, something that usually stabilizes a bit in that not every fly ball is going to leave the yard, but a certain percentage will. And Alec Marsh, all year, his numbers were sky high. And when I watched Alec Marsh pitch, when he was in the zone and when he was getting hit, it didn't look or feel like he was getting just blasted all over the yard all the time because that does happen. There are guys who achieve higher batting average on balls in play and they achieve higher fly ball to home run ratios because they're not great and they, they just get hit hard. It didn't feel that way with Alec Marsh. It didn't feel like he was overmatched, like his stuff, quote unquote, was, wasn't working. And so my conspiracy theory Nicholas is that the ball was potentially a leftover juice ball from the big leagues that they were testing something at double a maybe it was the shift maybe the shift being banned in some capacity had an impact on on how these guys pitched I don't really know how to explain it because everybody who's tried to explain it to me so far is well that's the Texas League and even in the Texas League Alec Marsh's numbers were super inflated so I was looking at Marsh thinking, man, this makes no sense. Like, how is he consistently giving up eight singles a game? Like, it makes no sense. You were around the club. There's nobody who saw more of Alec Marsh than you. How do you explain, even when some of these guys were throwing strikes, all the hits they were giving up? Because it's not like they lacked a, a good defense behind them. You know, I don't know if I can explain it, which is the frustrating part, because and so I've, I've seen Alec Marsh pitch since 2017. We, we were freshmen at Arizona State together. So I've seen him progress from when he was one of the worst pitchers in the Pac-12. Uh, and he would tell you that um, to, to where he is now. And I, I believe it was, it was public knowledge at the start of the year. There were three different baseballs used throughout the course of the Texas League season. Um, or it was the same baseball, but it was treated in three different ways. Uh, so for the first... I want to say it was 40 or 50. They were, it was lumped into groups of 40 or 50 games. The first, we'll call it third of the season, they were using – it was a Major League Baseball throughout the course of the season. Major League Baseball that was uh, pre-tacked in one way to start the season. Middle of the season was just the Major League Baseballs mudded up. And then the back third of the season was Major League Baseballs with a different uh, tack. I know one of the tacks was a spray. One of them was a powder. I forget which was on which end of the season. Um Part of, part of the struggle for the pitchers across the season was getting used to the new baseballs because, right, as soon as they get comfortable with one uh, grip with the baseball, it gets changed. Part of that was that the grips were getting changed with the seasons, right? As soon as it starts to warm up the weather, they're changing to the, the mudded baseballs. And then as soon as the weather maybe started to cool off a little bit, uh, then they were going back to a different – so there, there wasn't necessarily a level of consistency that any pitchers in the Texas League could get with um, with the grip of the baseballs. And, and part of the numbers, I think, can be attributed to the fact that the Texas League 
is going to be one of the most hitter friendly leagues in the in minor league baseball. You look at the the home run rates in Amarillo, especially, uh, but even places like Tulsa and Frisco, uh, sometimes Corpus Christi, the ball can fly. Um, Midland is another one. Uh, there are a lot of hitter friendly parks in this league. Now there are some pitcher friendly parks too, but it's more hitter friendly parks than pitcher friendly parks. Uh, part of it, I think, for a guy like Alec Marsh is bad luck because from a pure stuff standpoint, he has some of the best stuff in the league. There aren't going to be more many more pitchers that you can find that are going to be a power pitcher like Alec Marsh uh, with, a, with a fastball that is going to be mid-90s and a really good complement of, of off-speed and breaking stuff. Um, I'm kind of going on a tangent here, partially because I, I wish I knew what, what, what happened with Alec Marsh. It felt like... Um, there'd be innings where his command and his control would be really on. And then one big inning would kind of spiral the entire outing. Um, now I think it was a quarter or a third of his runs came on home runs. Um, and that sometimes was just leaving one mistake pitch over the heart of the plate. Um, part of it was bad luck. Um, but you look at his start once he got to Omaha last week, made his triple a debut. It was five innings, just a few runs. He got a win. Um, so I think after a certain point, uh, he just needed a change of scenery, which he got in Omaha. There's no doubt in my mind that he will be a good big league pitcher. I don't know what that role is yet. Um, but it was, it was really tough to watch, not just the struggles for Alec, but, but the entire pitching staff when, um, they can't get any consistency. Uh, and, and part of that does, like I said, tie back to the way that the balls were coded, but I don't want to place the blame on, on just that because there are so many other factors involved. Sure. And I, I I just texted Joel as we're sitting here. I, I'm going to cut him off. I'm going to let him come right back in and we're going to take this in a positive direction. I promise. <laughs> but I feel, I feel bad because I didn't know that. I didn't know they were giving the guys three different balls. I've been conspirizing this whole time that there's something going on with the ball that I didn't know what it was, but that something wasn't right. That is insane to me that they were giving the same pitchers three different balls. It would be one thing if you said, okay, once you enter the league, you can stick with the same ball, but I, I don't know how they would actually do that. I, I, I cannot fathom changing the ball twice during the season. That makes that, – that sounds dangerous. I mean, borderline dangerous for the health of some of these pitchers. I'm kind of concerned now that you said that. Like, what on earth was the thought process here? Don't name any names, but did you, did you hear frustrations from the pitchers? Like – like, did they vocalize that this was affecting them? I mean, like I said, don't name names, don't make yeah. excuses, but did they vocalize the frustrations with constantly having to adjust to a new ball, a new tack that was something that's unfamiliar to them? I didn't talk with them so much about the adjustments, but just talking about the spe specific balls that were used, I heard both good and bad about each of the three different coatings on baseballs, um, which maybe is to be expected because each pitcher is going to like something slightly different. I mean, early in the season, there were some pitchers that said that the tacked ball, when it was cold, they, they felt like they couldn't get a grip. Um, others liked the consistency, that every ball came from Rawlings the same. Uh, there were some guys that liked the fact that, yeah, we're using mudded up balls just like the big league. Like, this is the big league baseball. It's mudded up the same. Um, but other guys told me that there was a lack of consistency in how they were mudded up one ballpark to another. Um, and then, again, the same thing once the, the pre-tacked balls were changed. So, um, there was, I'd say, an even amount of positive and negative feedback just on the on the baseballs themselves, and and I think the idea that Major League Baseball has is wanting to see, okay, which 
which ball perfor- performs which way in, in which weather. Um, and they, they sent surveys to the players. They wanted to get feedback from the players on um, not just this, but all the experimental rules that were used. I don't know to what degree they're taking this feedback and applying it to the, the changes made moving forward. Um, but I know the, the players had a chance to get their voices heard. So um, not sure what's in store for next year, but um, I can, I can understand the frustration of having to change the balls. I'd hate to be season, any player or coach trying to, trying to do anything when you just can't get the consistent ball. That's, and that's part of the problem me. was that the balls were sent directly from Rawlings. They were, they were pre-tacked by, I, I believe it was Rawlings. Um, I just know that they, it was basically you take them out of the bag, dump them into the ball bag and they were good to go. And there was a very finite number of balls that were sent to each major league club. Some teams had an abundance and the pitchers were able to use them to play catch or warm up in the bullpen. And then there were other teams, I don't know specific teams, but other teams where um, the balls that the pitchers were using in the bullpen were different than the ones being used in games because they only had a finite number of game balls. Um which is ridiculous when you say that out loud, right? Um, so, yeah, it uh, you don't want to make excuses, but I think just generally you can attribute some of the, the high ERAs and BABIPs in the Texas League to uh, just the, the change in the baseballs. Now, to try and talk some, spend some positive when it comes to the Let's pitching staff here. Uh, down the stretch of the season, we did see some better starts from a lot of these pitchers, um, you know, just kind of across the board. Not every single star, but you could start to see some guys getting more comfortable. And some of this, you, it felt like it correlated with uh, when Luca Tresh gets called up from high A to double A. They get a really solid backstop in there. Do you think there was any, is that just coincidence? Or do you really think that Luca Tresh had an impact on this pitching staff that really helped them kind of springboard, you know, a nice end of the season into next year? I think part of it is just the fact that it was later in the season and guys were getting into better routines. That was around the time that TJ Sikama, Andrew Hoffman had been in double A for a couple of weeks to a month. So they were starting to figure out the level. Uh, Anthony Veneziano was getting locked in on what he needed to do. Um, that was also the time they, they skipped starts in the rotation for both Alec Marsh and Anthony Veneziano just to give them a little bit of rest because they had been used so much this year, unlike any other season for, for either of them. Uh, but there is definitely an, an element to, to Luca Tresh's arrival. And in talking with the Naturals manager, Chris Widger, um, he really raved about Luca's ability to learn to call the game, which is a very difficult thing to do, right? Because in college, there aren't a ton of catchers that are truly calling the game. A lot of, a lot of the stuff in college is coming from the dugout. It's coming from the coaching staff. So when you make the jump to pro ball, you are having to learn oftentimes how to call a game as a catcher. Uh, and it, it really helped having Chris Widger a, big league veteran catcher as the manager. I know he, he worked a lot with, uh, with not just Luca, but um, all five guys that caught for the naturals this year uh, between Sebastian Rivero, Gavin Stupinski, Tyler Crapley, Logan Porter, Luca Tresh, uh, which worked closely with a lot of them uh, from the, from the, the game calling uh, defense, blocking everything. Um, but yeah, Luca, and he told you the same thing. He takes a lot of pride in wanting to call a good game, uh, making the pitcher feel comfortable uh, in the in the game, and and part of another another thing at play is as the season got on, I think the pitching staff as a whole was gaining more confidence in trusting their catchers. Uh, Stephen Woods Jr. was was one guy that I talked to who who went into great detail about this. Uh, and as the season went on, he really learned 
when to throw what pitches in what counts, just in general, also based on the scouting reports. Um, and along with that, trust in your catcher. Um, because then if you start, if you start, if you have a pitch in mind that you want to throw um, and the catcher's telling you something different, you go with the catcher, you're probably not throwing that pitch with all of your conviction. Um, so you really want to be locked in with your catcher, trusting him 100 um, percent. So, again, a lot of a lot of correlations at play here, uh, but definitely the arrival of Luca Tresh. There is a little bit because um, he did take a ton of pride in, in his game calling, wanting to learn how to call a game and get better behind the plate. The other positive, I guess, of this uh, Northwest Arkansas natural season was kind of the emergence of some big-time uh, prospects that maybe might have been below the radar or off the radar entirely. Um, but just in general, this this Naturals offense did seem like it was the thing to watch in these, in these Naturals games a lot of these nights. So I guess before we start getting too much into specifics, what did you think of this offense as a whole? I mean, the way they play was a little bit, seemed a little bit more small ball, but it was like successful small ball with some of the lineups that they trotted out there. So I guess without them having like the top tier prospects that you've seen uh, over the last, like last season, what was the difference between that wave and this wave? And if you told me back that first week of April, that Nate Eaton and Michael Massey would be everyday big leaguers by the start of September. um, It's not that I don't know if I would have believed you because obviously they're fantastic players and I like, you kind of knew that they, they had big league potential, uh, but to see the, I guess meteoric is the right word, the the, the rise to, to the big leagues for those two was really, really special. Michael Massey, one of my all-time favorite humans in baseball. Um, but it was uh, it was a fun team. Early on, I was, I don't know if worried was the right word, but the Naturals had one home run for the first 10 games of the season. Uh, it, was, it was a very line drive, gap to gap power team that could also hit for over the fence power. Um, like John Rave is a great example. He has really good power to the gaps. He can also yank one down the line. Um, and for a lot of these guys, the power was starting to emerge. You think Michael Garcia, Diego Hernandez, they're, they're still growing into their bodies um, and, and discovering that power. Uh, Nick Lofton has, has put on uh, muscle. Robbie Glendinning led the team in home runs this year and, Having seen him in Australia, he was really a gap-to-gap, um, really your, your typical middle infielder, gap-to-gap hitter, and he, he had put on muscle. He started to, to find that power. I mean, the same could be said for Michael Massey. Um, they, that, that gap-to-gap power slowly, the, the line drive power started to translate to home runs as the season went on, which was really exciting. Uh, Suli Matias was starting to hit for a little bit of contact. Uh, it, was, it was a fun a fun offensive season, obviously no big time headliners like we had at the start of last year, though there aren't many minor league teams ever that can say that they have a a trio of prospects like the Naturals (laughs) had at the start of last year. Um, I mean, shoot, you look at the emergence of Tyler Gentry. I don't, I mean, I don't know if it's, I don't want to discount what he did. I don't know if anyone was expecting Tyler Gentry to do what he did. He just didn't stop hitting. Um, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Tucker Bradley, CJ Alexander. I mean, I could, I could rattle off essentially the, the entire roster. You look at what Logan Porter did uh, getting on base. It, um, it was a, it was a fun, fun team of offense. I was, I was definitely spoiled. I want to ask names... you... oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Alex. I was going to say, I wanted to ask about Nick Lofton specifically because he was 
Like there, there's this common cliche, jack of all trades, but a master of none. And I think that would be a disservice to Nick Lofton because he is a master of running the bases and of playing defense. He transitioned to center field better than I ever could have imagined. And I still don't know if I buy that Nick Lofton's a big league center fielder, but he was infinitely better than I could have imagined and in, in playing every day there before the arrival of Diego Hernandez. And he played second base incredibly well. He plays third base incredibly well. If you put him in left field, right field, he's going to be just fine. I think he can play shortstop at a big league level, maybe not an everyday big league level, but he is so good defensively. He runs the base as well. And he started to show off some serious pop. I mean, he had a home run early in the year for you guys, 444 feet. I think it hit the scoreboard out in left center field, wherever you maybe that was in San Antonio. I can't remember where you go. I feel like that was Frisco. Frisco, that's correct. Yep, down in Texas, because it was close to where he's from down there. So he goes down there and just goes nuts for part of the season. And yet, I don't think the overall numbers really reflected how good Nick Lofton was. So I'm going to get called a Nick Lofton homer because I've been driving the Nick Lofton hype train for most of the year. But talk about his versatility in – literally being able to do a little bit of everything like there's I don't think there's anything on a baseball field he's not capable of in some capacity I don't know if there's anyone this season that flashed all five tools more frequently than Nick Lofton I mean it was it was a really special thing to watch and and I talked to him early on in the season because right I mean he had only I mean he had played some left field his freshman year at Baylor but for the most part he was a shortstop and a pitcher his entire life um and he was playing a lot of shortstop last year. Now he's being asked to, to learn a position that's kind of new. And he took it as much in stride as you could ever ask for, for any baseball player. Um, again, another all-time human being. Anytime I'd say hello to him, ask him how he's doing, he'd tell me he's living the dream. Um, and he, 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 took, he took learning a new position, a new role in stride so, so well. There were definitely some rough moments learning – learning to track the ball, learning to, to take efficient routes, um, at times having to battle the wind. Uh, but he also, as the season went on, it felt like he was making more and more highlight real plays. He was learning as the season went on, which base do I throw to in which situation? So he had five or six outfield assists as well from center field. Um, it was incredible to see his base stealing increase as the season went on. It felt like he was – um, getting more and more comfortable on the base paths. Um, at time he could, again, hit it into the gaps. Other times he's going to hit it 450 feet. Uh, it, it didn't feel like there was anything Nick Lofton couldn't do. Um, just, I mean, absolutely unbelievable. And it, like, again, just as well-rounded as anyone um, could ask for out of a baseball player. I'd be curious to see where his long-term big league position is. Maybe it is that super utility guy that can, start 120 games and start at six different positions. I'm not sure. Um, it'll, it'll be fun to see, but yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a special player. You can see why the Royals drafted him so high. It makes, it makes a ton of sense. A, a guy that's like a OG Royals farm report guy, uh, is Sully Matias. And what to our pleasant surprise, one of the biggest question marks coming into the year was, can he stay healthy? Because he just hasn't done that for pretty much his entire minor league career. And he did this year. Uh, no major injuries, no major IL stints, played nearly 100 games. 
He was not the offensive juggernaut we thought that he could be. I say only considering the circumstances of the season, but only 16 home runs. Um, the OPS was right around 730. So nothing special for the guy that Suli is. But you just talk about like uh, every and everything that we hear about Suli is he's one of the best dudes in that clubhouse and like one of the best people. I've seen so many pictures and videos of him signing autographs for kids and taking that time and and being that fun clubhouse presence. But what did you see from him this year on and off the field? It was, it was so good to see Suli fully healthy. I know there there was there was a big piece of him that like, his playing time kind of started to go down, July into August, um, into early September, just because he wasn't produced. I mean, there was a log game of outfielders for the Naturals really for a lot of the season because I mean, early on you're you're battling John Rave, Nick Lofton, Tucker Bradley, Sula Matias, um, then Nate Eaton started to play in the outfield more regularly. Uh, all of a sudden you entered Tyler Gentry into the equation. Um, I mean, Nick Lofton's bouncing back and forth between the the infield and the outfield. Um, I mean, it was, it was encouraging early on to see that Suli was starting to hit for a little bit more contact. Um, the power numbers rose as the summer went on. And he went into a slump. Probably it was maybe the, Second week of July, it was right after the Naturals came back from Amarillo. Um, so first or second week of July, things kind of started to take a take a downturn. Um, and it was almost a question of doing a little bit too much. Felt like at times he was swinging so aggressively when it feels like he could just high five the ball and it'd fly 400 feet. Um, but the attitude that he brought to the field every day, whether he was in the lineup, not in the lineup, whether he was playing well, not playing well, um, always smiling again, a guy that everyone in that clubhouse loves. Um, and towards the end of the season, he was back in the lineup playing more regularly and it was starting to click. He was, he was hitting more home runs. He was, he was putting the ball in play more. Um, he was drawing more walks this season, which was encouraging. Uh, I believe it was the highest on base percentage of his career. Um, if not, um, the highest since his, his rookie season, um, the batting average was higher than it has been the past couple of years. Um, so obviously you still want to see the batting average get above 230 um, and, and maybe a, a little bit more power for what he's capable of. Um, but considering that Suli stayed healthy, uh, I mean, I don't know what more you could ask out of him at this point. The uh, They did – the Naturals did get some more talent, including C.J. Alexander after the trade deadline. Uh, it was the deal that brought you Waters and uh, and Hoffman, correct, in the yeah. in the uh, draft or the trade with the the Braves. But it brought in a little bit more pop into that lineup. Uh, we talked a little bit about Sully Matias, really one of the major and only sources of power in that lineup. A lot of small ball up and down that lineup a little bit. So it's bringing in C.J. Alexander to that lineup, what did it do for that lineup? Did you see any kind of noticeable uh, jump in production just to where he fit into that middle of the order? It was interesting because when, when CJ first arrived, the, it was the first week or two, probably yeah, through the end of July um, or thereabouts felt like he was trying to do too much. And I say that in the sense of he was almost trying to justify why the Royals traded for him, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, and yeah. and part of that is mental. Just in, um, I mean, he was already having a career year. Part of it for him was staying healthy because he's been a guy that's battled injuries um, the the past few years of his career. Um, 
And once he, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't know if it's fair to say that he was in his head, but once he got out of his head and back into the routine of just doing what I've been doing all season long, the results are there. You're not going to find anyone that was a better run producer in minor league baseball than August uh, in August than, than CJ was. He was, he was getting hits with runners on base runners and scoring position. Um, and again, that it power about, it was like four days where he had home runs four in a row. Yeah. There were there were a lot of four home. I want to say it was. There were three stretches in Nationals history prior to this season where players had hit home runs in four consecutive days. It happened three times this year, so that total doubled this year. Because <laughs> um, I know Robbie Glendening and Nick Lofton both yep. did it. I believe in Amarillo, and then CJ had his stretch as well. It was um, it was fun. I mean, he's a guy that you you look at what, and this is what's so fascinating to me. You look at what. Nick Prado and MJ Melendez did with the Royals in the off season after the 2019 season, just to completely break down their swing, start from scratch, essentially. CJ did that this past off season on his own, um, which is part of what led to the increase in production this year on top of staying healthy, obviously. Uh, but he looked at, okay, what was I doing? That wasn't working. Uh, what was working? Let's build the swing, the mechanics back up. Um, and he, he put together a great season. He, uh, the Baseball America Best Tool Survey had him as the best defensive third baseman in the in the Southern League before his trade. Um, hmm. So uh, he played first base a lot down the stretch for the Naturals. Uh, he was he was very good there, um, and I could see him having uh, big league roles at either the corner infield positions. Um, and he was another guy that just he brought a lot of energy to the dugout. Uh, and once he he settled in, it was fun to watch things click. Couple more questions for you, Nick. We'll get you out of sure. here. One more about a specific player. Diego Hernandez comes up at midseason, 21 years old, is a human retriever in center field. I I don't know that I have, uh, not that he's the best defensive center fielder I've ever seen in the minor leagues, but he might be the most fun that I've seen just in terms of like he's got a little, I don't mean to compare the two at all in terms of their player, but he's got a little Ken Griffey Jr. in him where it's just like this fearless, relentless pursuit of the baseball. Go get it at all costs. It doesn't always look great, but there he is running down a ball you never thought he'd get to. And he's also got a really good arm. Like, I think his arm is a really underrated tool he has. He's just fun to watch. Like, he, anytime the ball's in play, there's a chance he's going to be safe at first base. He started to hit some more line drives. He, by the way, one of our running jokes on Twitter was how did Diego Hernandez hit that ball that far? (laughs) Just out on one foot, swing the bat or flail the bat through the strike zone and then wham, 410 feet later. It's like, how did he physically hit the ball that far? He's just fun to watch, man. Even if he's not a top 10 prospect in the system, which he's probably pushing, but even if that's not what he is, He's got a really fun skill set that I really enjoy watching. What was his impact like coming in as a 21-year-old uh, in the middle of the season? At the time that, that Diego and Luca arrived, uh, Luca Tresh, that was kind of around the time that the Naturals were starting to play 500 baseball, that, that middle of August. The, it, was, it was the final 28 games of the season, I believe, the Naturals were playing 500 baseball thereabouts, and that lines up with when uh, Diego Hernandez and Luca Tresh came to the team now it was tough because on the roster they were replacing two of the biggest offensive pieces of the season Nick Lofton and Logan Porter those aren't 
easy bats to replace in the lineup. Um, and it's not that they replaced them, but uh, Diego, like you said, he was so much fun to watch. I mean, he he kind of bounced he, – he started hitting second of the order just because old Tucker Bradley had kind of taken over that role and gone off running with the, the leadoff spot. And then once, um, once Tucker hit the injured list, then – and Diego took the leadoff spot in the order. But like you said, he was so gosh darn fast. Anytime a ball is hit the ground the infield, there is, it is a flip of a coin whether or not he's going to be safe. Uh, one of my favorite things the Naturals did this year was just the constant bunts with a third baseman drawn back in the shortstop position, even just the third baseman playing a normal depth, whether it's, it's Tucker Bradley, John Rave, Diego Hernandez, probably more than anyone, dropping a bunt down the third baseline to be safe at first. It was... Uh, it was fun to watch him play. He's definitely going to be someone that creeps up the prospect rankings um, as he continues to um, further his career. I still have to remind myself. I mean, he, he's in that camp of, of uh, it was him, Jeffrey Del Rosario. I'd have to remind myself. He's still 21, 22 years old. Um, should even Luca trash falls in that category. You forget he's one of the youngest players um, on the team in the league. Uh, it's, he's just, he brings a, a fun electricity to the ball game. Uh, and he's another one of those guys just with a really fun personality um, when, when he's vibing, when he's in a good mood, kind of everyone else in the dug, dugout is too. You had some really cool moments this year, some walk-offs, a couple of electric players that are running all over the place, creating havoc, making good defensive plays. There was, even though the record probably wasn't what everybody wanted it to be, there's still a lot of cool moments on a team that had Tyler Gentry, Michael Garcia, Nick Lofton, Diego Hernandez, et cetera. What was your favorite call that you made this season? It's interesting because there aren't any last year. I think there were a few that like really stood out as, wow, that was a, that was a moment that I'm going to remember the rest of my baseball career this year. It wasn't, that there weren't any of those, but there were a lot of, um, just fun moments in baseball. I love the, um, obviously Bobby and Clay Dungan turned some fantastic double plays this year, but the start of the year that it felt like they're playing hot potato with the baseball, Michael Massey and Michael Garcia, I think might've been one of the best middle infields in, in minor league baseball. It was so much fun to watch those guys turn double plays. Um, John Rave, Nick Lofton, Tyler Gentry, uh, making diving catches in the outfield. Um, I really like a good outfield assist. Um, th- those kinds of plays are some of my favorites to call, but obviously it's hard to top five walk-offs. Um, last year's team had two when they came on back-to-back days in September. Um, three walk-off home runs was really fun, especially the, the Diego Hernandez home run was uh, – that that was a top moment for sure. Um, the, the stretch when Alec Marsh struck out eight straight batters in North Little Rock mm-hmm. really stands out to me. That set a Naturals record. Um, what else? Uh, Gavin Stupinski hit a grand slam for his only home run of the season in Wichita. <laughs> poked it the other way. Um, set a that that home run or that grand slam set a Naturals single season record for the most grand slams by the team in a, in a, in a season. It was the Naturals seventh of the year, um, and that was fun. Um, Nick Lofton hit a grand slam off of um, his Baylor teammate, Cody Bradford in uh-huh. Frisco, which I think was the 440 foot one yep. uh, back in April, which was, which was fun. Um, 
when we were in, and I'm, I'm just rambling on and on because there are a lot of moments that stick out. Oh yeah. When, when we were in Tulsa, that would have been end of August, beginning of September, um, top of the ninth inning. And the, dr- the drillers intentionally walked the naturals more than any other team did. And they intentionally walked Tucker Bradley to get to Tyler Gentry um, with a right-hander on the mound, which I found curious. I mean, look, I think it's at that point picking a lesser of two evils um, yeah. kind of situation. Um, but uh, Tyler Gentry promptly hit a three-run home run to give the Naturals <laughs> the lead like two pitches later. And it just – I think that really well encapsulated the season for Tyler Gentry because he somehow flew under the radar from opening day until the final weeks of the season. Um not, and this isn't to take away anything from Tucker Bradley because Tucker was having a fantastic series, possibly even better than, than Tyler Gentry was. Um, but as soon as you think you're choosing the lesser of two evils in that situation, Tyler Gentry gives you some right on right crime. Um, <laughs> it was uh, some of my favorite moments to call are the ones with the big crowds um, at the mm. end of the season. The final day of the year, we had over 5,000 at Arvest Ballpark. Um, the Naturals had an incredible comeback with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning against Frisco nearly won the game. The crowd was into it. Um, the, I mean, Sully had a walk off on the 4th of July. That was fun. Um, and it's, it's difficult to call this a favorite memory, but one of the most memorable moments from the season was when the naturals were no hit in North little rock. That was one of the biggest crowds the naturals played in front of all season long. It was, it was nearly 8,000 fans at Dickie Stevens park. Um, and the starting pitcher in that game for the Travelers, Prolander Baroa, was on the, the first ever minor league team that I worked for in 2019 in the Appalachian League with the Elizabethan Twins. Uh, he was one of my all-time favorite players. He was one of my favorite players from that team. Really nice kid. He barely spoke any English at the time. Uh, but uh, I, was, I was teaching him photography as the season went on. Um, I was with him when he found out he got traded from the Twins to the Giants. <laughs> Um, in Burlington, um, we were the, we were playing the Royals. Um, and so I, I, I hated that Burlington Royals team because that, that, that team had Michael Massey and Vinny Pasquantino and Logan Porter and Angel Serpa. And I'm thinking, how is there, how, how, I think, I think they took five of six from us in the season. Um, that, that was a team managed by Chris Widger, um, mm-hmm. with Jonah DePoto was unstoppable that season. And I'm sitting here thinking, how is anyone going to beat this team? Um, Lo and behold, they have the most big leaguers currently of any team in the Appalachian League that year. Point being, my first game of minor league baseball, uh, Prelander threw the first four innings on opening night hitless. And then our pitching staff took a combined no-hitter on the eighth inning, didn't end up winning it, but won on a walk-off. And he was the starting pitcher when the Travs no-hit the Naturals. So from a personal standpoint – as much as it was terrible to see the Naturals no hit, it was the first no hitter that I had called, and it was cool to see one of my favorite people in baseball. Be like, if there's anyone that's going to do it, I'd want it to be him. Mm. Um, so, um, I know that was a really rambling answer, but uh, yeah, there there were just a lot of fun moments here or there. Um, for as tough of a season as it was, there were there were some really really. Um, fun moments um and just uh plays situations players that i'll remember for a long time i don't know if you guys have any favorite memories favorite calls because the calls specifically don't stand out in my head 
I think it was Diego Hernandez first home run at double A. I think it was like out on one foot and he cranked it into deep right field. And it was kind of my realization, like this kid's legit. Like my God almighty, how did he do it? How did he physically hit that baseball that far? It makes no sense, but um, there were, there's definitely some good ones, even on it. Like I said, on a team that didn't win as much as they wanted to, it was, it was cool to, to see them grow and, and Tyler Gentry, especially all the, all the, the, the developments and the growth he made throughout the year was pretty cool. So Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Outstanding to relive the season a little bit and, and get back into it. Um, for everybody listening, Nicholas, like I said, was the Royals. It was the, the, the naturals broadcaster. He is the voice of the Northwest Arkansas naturals. Nobody more qualified to come on and talk about the team this year. Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us. We will talk to you again, hopefully very soon. Right, guys, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. Looking forward to doing it again soon. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, big thank you to Nicholas Batters for joining us. That was an outstanding interview. It's always fun. Um to to relive the season that we watched so much of with the guy who was there more so than anybody bring back some memories bring back you know some cool moments from watching baseball and guys the Omaha Storm Chasers have just one game remaining at the time of recording this they play tomorrow which is Wednesday the 28th and then their season will be over and minor league baseball for the Royals will be over for the season Let's, let's do some final thoughts. We're going to get to final thoughts, the actual final thoughts here in a minute. Let's do some quick final thoughts on the minor league season. I want to start with Josh. Josh, what are your final overall thoughts as we wind down the minor league season right now? Um, I think we've talked about it a few times, and we kind of talked about it with uh, Nicholas Batters there, that the pitching um, taking a step back, or at least the big – that's where the big names mostly were once these guys with the bats graduated. So – the fact that they 
almost across the board looked bad, worse than they were, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it, is the story of the minor league season to me. It's we needed more. These guys that we grabbed, the Kowar, the the Lynch, the Bubich, they've left plenty to be desired. So you start looking towards the future at the at, at the Ace of Lacy's, the Alec Marshes, and you're like, what can you do? Can you do it better than them? And apparently that answer was no this year. So that is going to be the story of this season to me, even with all the emergence, emergences of legitimate seeming bats that we didn't necessarily see coming largely because of the failure of the organization to develop the core four, whatever you want to call them. So that's going to be the big one. And it's also going to be the big storyline that's going to be needed in the next, this off season and in the next season next year, that's going to be the big one I'm going to be looking for. Joel, final thoughts on the minor league season as we wind down. You know, to, to go, I'll go to the hitter side for this, and it really was the emergence of some guys that kind of flew under the radar at the beginning, at least going into the season. Like, we knew the big-time guys that were going to go and move up that we knew that were known commodities that we for sure were going to hit, right? But it was Tyler Gentry having a ridiculous season between high A and double A, turn himself into a prospect that legitimately could make a, an opportunity in the big leagues by next season. It was Michael Massey kind of, that we knew about him, we knew how good he was, but really turning it on and get finding his way to the big leagues, become an everyday player. Nate Eaton turning into that guy, but you can even go down to to high A and Luca Tresh really started to hit and look looks like a, a steal for where the Royals got him in the draft in 2021. Uh, River Town uh, from that same draft class really hit in uh, in low A and was pretty solid in high A. I think he's he could be a pop guy going to next year. And then you go down to low A and Lisandro Rodriguez turned into a dude down the stretch for that uh, for that low A team as they were in Colombia as they were making that chase toward the playoffs at the very end. He's another guy that I think is really going to pop next year. And the injection of guys like Gavin Cross, Caden Wallace to the organization at the end of that year, they're guys that are going to be high impact bats in 2023 that are going to start forcing their way towards the big leagues too. So there was a lot to like for the guys at the top that we all knew of. But there is even more guys that were kind of laying in the grass, kind of under the radar, that have really popped and asserted themselves as legitimate big league prospects with the way that they hit this year. That was going to be along the lines of, of my final thought for the season as well, is the Royals established themselves as a top. I was going through today, and I was kind of looking at other development groups. Obviously, you have the Dodgers. The Brewers do a really good job. The Rays do a good job. The Yankees do a good job. Um, I'm, I'm missing. I didn't – I wrote it down, and then I didn't bring the paper in here with me. But there were like nine organizations that I would throw the Royals into the bottom of a second tier. So I think the Dodgers, the Rays, the Astros are kind of in a class of their own generally with everything. But then there's another group of five to six – hitting development organizations that I think the Royals solidified themselves as being in that the bottom of the second tier or very clearly the, the, the best team in tier three of hitting development where they are clearly a top 10 developmental group in baseball on the offensive side. This is something I think we can expect moving forward is it's okay to believe in the Lisandro Rodriguez's of the world because of Nate Eaton. 
because of Michael Massey, because of Vinny Pasquantino, the Royals have shown us it's okay to believe they can turn these guys into something that is valuable. So that was also my final thought. But just to differ things up a little bit, I'll say my final thought is that the Royals still have a way to go to make sure that when the big league club is ready to compete, that they have reinforcements behind them. And they need to continue adding reinforcements to the system. Gavin Cross was a great step. Caden Wallace was a great step. But they need more. They need guys to fill in. And I'll specifically point to the double-A team. At the end of the season, it was Tyler Gentry, who was the only prospect in the lineup that we know is going to hit at the big league level at some capacity. Luca Tresh is in a tier right behind him where there's a decent chance to be a big league contributor, but nothing that is for certain and nothing's for certain for Tyler Gentry. It's just, I feel pretty confident about Tyler Gentry at high a, I don't really know at the end of the season, there were any, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know who it would have been there. There weren't any Peyton Wilson's on the same level as Luca Tresh for me where yeah. there's a chance, but there's, there's no guarantee for any of them that high A team was devoid of talent for much of the year. So between double A and, and high A, you had a couple guys, three guys with, with a decent chance, one guy with a good chance. The rest of those guys were in triple A, the big leagues, or low A. There's a gap that's missing of with talent and that it needs to be filled, whether it's you know through trade, through free agency, through the draft again next year. They need to keep adding fuel to the fire and the way to screw that up pretty quickly, drafting prep arms that don't hit, drafting <laughs> college arms that you don't succeed in developing, they've got to keep doing what they do well, and that's adding bats. That way, next year, let's say they draft the Gavin Cross of next year's class. Now you have a Gavin Cross A and a Gavin Cross B. It's okay to trade one of them, even though they're in low A, high A, even though you really like them, because – we're just going to keep adding them. We're just going to keep adding them to mm-hmm. the system like it's nothing. So keep adding talents. You're not there yet. Don't rest on your laurels and draft Clyde Edwards-Alaire in the first round because you <laughs> need more receivers. Just keep adding legitimate weapons. Don't pass up on T. Higgins and Michael Pittman Jr. because you think a running back is going to cure all of your problems. That would be my final thought. So Also keep adding to the batter eye camera in quad cities. We're going to need that before all these high profile uh, pitching prospects are going to be hitting quad cities soon. Honestly, can we start a a GoFundMe? Got to a GoPro in center field would be better than what. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Hopefully we'll have Kyle Kirchival on eventually. He is the broadcaster down there at high a, and we could talk to him about Kyle. What is going on? What do we got to do? We got to do something here, man. So, yeah. Gentlemen, final thoughts tonight have to be about the worst beat you've ever been a part of. Joel, go. So I'm fairly new to the betting to actually like putting money down on stuff. Uh, obviously with Kansas making it legal, um, had a couple decent weeks, had a couple really bad weeks. Feels like it's just alternating. So I'm going six and zero this weekend, but I think it was, it was a couple weeks ago. I had Fresno state plus one against Oregon state, essentially a pick them. And Fresno was winning. For most of the game, it was pretty close back and forth, but it felt like Fresno was going to find a way to win. And then Oregon State scores on the literal final play of the game on a wildcat read option as time expires and scores the winning touchdown. 
Uh, I didn't stay up for that one because it was on the West Coast and the game ended past one in the morning. Uh, so to wake up and see that that actual that that was the way the game happened, kind of glad I didn't stay up for it because I would have been pissed. So that one kind of hurt. Yeah. Yeah, Joshua. that would have been tough. Uh, worst beat I was ever part of was uh, back in grade school. Um, it, we had hot dogs for lunch one time, and I ate my hot dog, and I wanted another one. And unfortunately, beets were the side item, and I wasn't touching that. And they said, well, if you eat a beet, then you can have another hot dog. So I ate the beet, and not to be crass or anything, but I threw up everywhere. So that was the worst beat I've ever been a part of. Both That's going to do it for the Royals Farm Report podcast. B-E-E-T and B-E-A-T because it's a food challenge and I'm, I've am i got to be favored at Vegas odds. Got to be in my favor almost every one of those. So it was the worst beat because of the beat. I didn't see that coming. That was good. That was good. Thank you. The beat was not good. Last year I laid one of the biggest bets and I bet like literally a dollar at a time. All my bets are a dollar. So I think I bet $3 on the Cleveland Browns. I think they were plus three and a half. It was three and a half or four and a half. That number matters. It was either three and a half or four and a half against the Baltimore Ravens in what might have been the best football game of the entire NFL season. It was the Lamar pooped his pants game. (laughs) Remember that? So Lamar poops his pants. The Browns are winning the game. So, again, I just need them to cover three or four points. They are winning the game with 30 seconds left. No way they don't cover, right? The Baltimore Ravens scored a touchdown after Lamar pooped his pants. He came back onto the field. They score a touchdown with three seconds on the clock. This game is over. The Cleveland Browns are covering. I'm going to win my $3. (laughs) They ran some schoolyard bullshit to end the end the game, threw oh. the ball out of the back of the end zone, safety, they lost by five. Ouch. What was the what was the Thursday night game? It was the they tried to hook and ladder laterals and it ended up oh, getting yeah. knocked in the end zone and, and going uh beyond Killed the cover. every Pittsburgh plus seven and a half teaser. Yep. Crazy. Killed the um, uh, the PMI super boost that they actually that Vandal <laughs> actually gave back all the money. I don't generally bet Mizzou games because uh, they are so wildly inconsistent that nothing would shock me with them. Uh, um, but the game against Auburn would have been the worst beat if you were betting on the Mizzou uh, money line. They their All American kicker misses an extra point to win the game, and then they fumble the touchdown. The guy score he was going to score the touchdown. If he holds the ball, that would have been one of the worst beats ever. That was unbelievable. I will say, though, you want to make yourself a dollar this weekend? Bet Mizzou plus 28 by the hook, 28 and a half versus Georgia. Mizzou will never beat Georgia again, but they almost always cover the spread. I don't know what it is about Mizzou and Georgia. We just, I think Georgia just takes it easy on us because they like us, but we have almost always covered the spread. 28 is a big number. I get it. There's going to be a lot of running the football. I don't think – I think Mizzou covers this weekend, so. And if there's a strength, that's the Mizzou defense. So, I mean, obviously the, the Georgia offense is crazy. So it's going to be tough to be able to contain them at all. But I feel like they could still lose 28-7. to 
31 to 7. The problem is, I don't know how we score. Yeah. But remember, what, what was it last year? We were 35 and a half point, like 38 point dogs. Yeah. We, lost, it was, we, we held them to like 35 and yeah. tried to score a touchdown at the end, maybe. But did you guys, okay, last thing. I swear to God, we'll get out of here. Did you <laughs> see the line for Thursday night football this week? Yeah. Well, what are you talking about? Which favorite over Miami. Who was? The Bengals are a four point favorite oh, yeah. over Miami. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I don't know. But if you do like money, if you like winning money, take Baylor minus two and a half against Oklahoma State. No, I actually I actually like Oklahoma State. And the last time you Uh-oh. told me we were gonna make some money, Joel, you told me wrong. You picked it was either Louisville or UCF or whatever that game was, and you were dead wrong. I'm not that is I don't know about Just, that. Trust me guys, on this one. I think Oklahoma State's going to win that game. I'm a, I'm a battered Cowboy fan. I can't have happiness. So. I really think they're going to win that game. <laughs> I, I think the pokes are coming out on top. As much as you want to talk shit about Mizzou during the week, I'm supporting the Cowboys. I, I appreciate weekend. it. I'm glad that you have hope in my team. I don't. You do the okey pokey and you turn yourself around. <laughs> I'm so glad we're switching to audio because they can't see what we're what we're doing right now. Good night, Canada. <laughs> <laughs>